0: So we'll go with this. Um, just means I can't move around as much. Second uh, Kings chapter six, verse eight. Um, I I had to go back in my notes. I was ooh, pretty sure that uh, I'm pretty sure that I have not used this uh, the story of my life before. But uh, in the last couple weeks, I've uh, I have, have a conversations with a couple people about about car accidents. Uh, and things like that, and it seems especially applicable for uh, this past weekend. But uh, back when I was in in high school, probably 15 years ago or so, um, it was it was December. It was winter. Uh, this was really really the one and only car accident that I've been in, uh, and I was a passenger in the back seat. And I was hanging out with my best friend who was sitting in the passenger seats, and. Uh, his friend, so a friend of my friend, was driving, and we were just messing around on some Friday night or something around Christmas. I think we decided to go to a movie or something and um, for some reason i don 't remember why, but we decided to just kind of go driving around before we actually went to go see the movie and This was kind of in uh, in the Grand Rapids area, but but way out of the city, and so we 're in the backwoods. I think we were literally just driving around random. Dirt roads. And uh, we were messing around as dumb high schoolers do and not driving very safely. And uh, I believe my friend in the passenger seat actually taken off his seatbelt for some reason, uh, for no reason in particular. And I don't remember much about the accident itself, but I remember three things. One, coming over the dirt road hill, getting to the top, looking down and seen a 90-degree turn to the left. Uh, I remember skidding off and skidding on the roof of the car and seeing headlights hitting all the different plants and grass and stuff and all that grass hitting the windshield and just sliding upside down. And then I remember just dangling upside down with my seatbelt after the car had come uh, to rest All three of us walked out of that car without a scratch. I mean, it was, it it really was miraculous, especially considering my friend had not been wearing his seatbelts. And I actually looked over at one point and had forgotten there was some knife or machete or something that had been flying all around the car that had just been sitting in the backseat and it was stuck, I think in the roof uh, next to me. Crazy, miraculous really. Um, that we all got to walk away without any injuries. Um, and it made me think of, you know, I, I'm sure we've all had a situation, not necessarily like that, not necessarily a car accident, but a situation that we've been able to walk away from and say, how in the world did I walk away from that? I shouldn't have walked away. I should, have, I, I should still be laying on the ground. I should still be sick. I should still should be whatever. There are all different ways that, that God has miraculously rescued us. And really, I, I could say you could think of all a, a different type of miraculous rescues, except you might not even know it, the type of rescues where you never even knew you were in trouble in the first place, but God somehow delivered you from it. So you can kind of keep on the theme of, of car accidents, even driving around in the winter and, and having your car start to, to fishtail or, or, or uh, skid side to side, and then it just... Kind of straightens back out, and you're able to keep going. Something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit more dangerously when you get uh, when you get the you hear your phone go off while you're driving, and you see that you hear the text, and you very wisely think in that moment, I think I can let that one go. Let me wait until I get somewhere first before I look at it. Um, all these miraculous ways we don't even know that God is taking care of us. We don't always know how or why or when God is watching over us and delivering us, but we know that he does. And as we come to 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning, we we see that there are a lot of different people that are in for something of a rude awakening to realize that. Or maybe you could put it more accurately, something like a benevolent awakening to see God's protection for them. Uh, so we're going to read in just a minute 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23. Uh, before I do that, though, let me pray one more time. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, co- we come to you again. We come to you in the name of Jesus to ask for your blessing in these next few minutes. We know that on our own, we, we do not get to come to you but we have our strong and perfect plea as we've sung that allows us to come to your throne and ask you. And so we pray now that as we, as we read your word, as we, as we hear it preached, that you, would, uh, that you would help it to take root in our hearts. And we pray that we, it would bear fruit in us, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Lord, would you bear fruit in our lives? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read 2 Kings 6, beginning at verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom." And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. <clears throat> and Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Amen. So just a a brief recap here. We take a a few weeks in between these Elisha sermons. Elisha the prophet has been ministering and and interacting with all these different types of people uh, in Israel. He began, if you remember, in chapter 3. Uh, by dealing with the, the wicked, rebellious, apostate King Jehoram, as he was going to war, then after that we got kind of a, a string of encounters in chapter four, where where Elisha is dealing with uh, the the faithful and and God fearing and, and weary remnant in Israel, those who are still faithful, and of course the big the big pinnacle of Elisha was in chapter five when when he, he heals Naaman of his leprosy. And we see that God's grace goes international. It goes worldwide. It brings somebody in. Uh, even as we, as Pastor Lawrence just prayed from Genesis 12, the blessing to Abraham is meant to bring in the nations and bless the nations. Uh, and then we saw last time early in chapter 6, he, he deals again with, with a, a small, faithful, God-fearing remnant in Israel. Now he's back to... The wicked, rebellious king. And of course, one of the, the big things probably that you'll notice if you read this text, it just jumps right off the page at you, is that God is, is really miraculously protecting his people. But it's not just a, an everyday, ordinary kind of protection. It's, it's a covenantal protection for God's people. That is, it's a protection that is based on the fact that God Is in covenant with his people. That's the protection Israel gets here, a protection that is based on the fact that he is in covenant with us. And there are really two aspects of this covenantal protection that we need to draw out of this text. The first one is that covenantal protection is always there, whether you see it or not. And secondly, that covenantal protection is undeserved. So we're going to look at the story of Elisha with those two points in mind. Covenantal protection is always there whether or not you see it. And covenantal protection is undeserved. So let's look at that first point. We open here in our text in verse 8. Actually, similarly to when we did with chapter 5 with Naaman, we, we open with Syria. We don't open with Israel. We open with the foreign nation. And what we find is, is actually similar to Naaman, the same way that, that Naaman went and had actually gotten his little servant girl that told him about Elisha, that told him where to go and get healed, that eventually led to his salvation. If you remember, she had been sort of stolen away from Israel by this sort of this band of, of raiders. And we find that that's what Syria is still doing. Syria is still sort of sending these pillaging crews into Israel. The problem for Syria is that somehow Israel keeps getting tipped off. And every time the king sends his people to a certain place, and he knows for certain this is where they're going to be, they're just not there. He says, what in the world is going on? Uh, to the point that he thought someone in his, his his inner circle, his cabinet, so to speak, was must have been betraying him. Must have been giving away the information. Uh, and so this is kind of like this happened to me on Thursday night leaving the church, big snowstorm. Actually, I thought about this. This is really unhelpful if you're going to listen to the sermon back in the summer because there's too many snow stories here. But uh, Thursday, Thursday night leaving the church, I'd, I'd gotten up to the street. I was about to pull out. Uh, there's slush and snow everywhere. I'm waiting for some cars to pass. So I stopped and I went to push the gas to turn out eventually and my car went nowhere. <laughs> Uh, my wheels just spun in place in the parking lot, and I couldn't get anywhere. That's how it feels for this king of Syria. You pick up on the maybe the, the, the military aspect a little bit more. You're driving this, this ginormous tank into battle, but somehow the wheels just keep spinning in place, and you can't go anywhere. You can't accomplish anything. We're doing so much, and we're so powerful, but we just can't seem to get anything done. Ugh. That's what it's like for this king. And so when he asks who is betraying him, one of his, his, uh, his cabinet members pipes up. And again, this is one of those things, we don't know how he knows, but we know, um, it's too many no's, we, we don't know how he knows, but he tells the king that Elisha's the one tipping him off. And actually, it's much more sort of ominous than just that. This is not just the king's confidential plans, but even the way he says it in verse 12. He tells the king the words that you speak in your bedroom. It's not just the tactical military plans. The entire king's life is an open book to the Lord. And in... in, probably one of the single worst decisions that a king could make. He's having a problem sending his troops to go get Israel, right? And so what does he decide to do? Send his troops to go get Elisha. Uh, Very ill-advised, very irrational decision uh, in the history of all kingly decisions. He decides to move his troops to go get Elisha in the city of Dothan. And they, they, they're in such a hurry, they go by night, they surround the city, and in the morning, Elisha and his servants wake up, and Elisha's servant goes, goes out, and he sees the army. Imagine, Dothan is sitting up on a hill, and so he's probably looking down, and he can see an army encircling the city. And he reacts like most of us would do. Alas, what are we going to do? We're going to die. Elisha's very calm. Elisha knows. Elisha tells him the truth that he needs to hear, that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's one thing to be told that, but it's another thing altogether to see it. And so that's what Elisha does. He, he prays to God, and, and again, it's one of the things we don't know, but, but it's almost as if these curtains open up to a spiritual realm right in front of his eyes, and he sees the the giant, fiery angel army standing between them and Syria. I imagine that if a man made out of fire were to walk in this room right now, most of us would probably run. It is a terrifying thing to be in the presence of angels. There's There's a very similar story with Balaam Uh, Balaam and his talking donkey in Numbers chapter 22. Do you remember when Balaam is on his way to go curse Israel and and an angel of the Lord is going to stop him? The donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't, which is strange. So the the donkey sees the angel at first and turns off, off the path and walks away. Uh, Balaam gets her back onto the path, and then they encounter the angel again, but they're kind of trapped in by walls, so the donkey kind of backs into a wall and, and crushes, uh, crushes Balaam's foot. Uh, but they get going again, and the donkey sees the angel a third time, and the donkey finally lays down, and then Balaam loses his, loses his, uh, uh, loses his mind with the donkey and starts hitting it, just saying, what are you doing? And the Lord opens the donkey's mouth to speak, but then he opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. Um, Balaam needed to have his eyes opened to see the angel, even though it was standing there the entire time. Now, it's quite fascinating. We could, we could spend a lot of time talking about what angels uh, do or don't do in Scripture, but Hebrews 1 is, is, is quite instructive for us. Hebrews 1 is all about comparing angels and Jesus. And in Hebrews 1.14, the author says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels are, are here to serve us. At the Lord's command. And in the same breath, though, the author of Hebrews is, is also kind of downplaying them, right? He's saying, "You don't focus on the angels. Yes, they are awesome. they are great, but you need to be focused on the sun." But still, I think we would do well to have a, a greater awareness of the potential angels around us. We would do well to have a greater awareness of what God is doing unseen around us. Our God is the God of angel armies. And every time you read in scripture, that name, that name for the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that's what it means. Our God is a God of angel armies. And so it doesn't matter if it's 10,000 against one like it is here with Elisha. He did it with Elijah as well on Mount Carmel, and it was 850 prophets of Baal versus just Elijah. Elijah came out on top. He does it here with a thousand swords and a thousand horses and chariots against one man. We do well to remember in just our our daily lives, we've got a, a God of angel armies behind us. With whatever we need. Uh, but there's an important caveat here as well with this God of angel armies. It brings us really to the Garden of Gethsemane with, with the, the text that we read earlier, where the mob is coming for Jesus. And, you know, Jesus, uh, his, his, I can't say days, but his hours are really numbered now. He's about to die And the mob comes for him, and Peter takes out his sword, and he starts swinging, and he cuts off an ear. And what what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh, thanks, Peter. That was really helpful. No, he says, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I have 12 legions of angels that the Father could send down and help me right now if you wanted? A a legion of angels is 6,000. A legion in general, 6,000. That adds up to 72,000 angels that the Father could send and help Jesus right now. One commentator, Ralph Davis, says 72,000 angels chomping at the bit to come fight for Jesus and rescue him from the most unjust killing in human history. But they don't come. One angel does come. And that's in the Luke text. One angel comes to help Jesus, and it's to help him while he's agonizing, and while he's praying to the Father, and while he's wrestling with having to go through the cross. Why didn't those 72,000 angels come for Jesus? Because it was not the will of the Lord to rescue Jesus from the cross. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's angel army that we have at all times, it might not do what we want them to do. God's protection might not look like what we think it's supposed to. Most of the time, actually, and Ralph Davis says this as well, he doesn't help us escape from our emergencies, but endure them. And so if you're wondering why God just hasn't taken you out of this trial yet, why hasn't that one person in my life changed? Why are my kids still walking away? Why do I still get these panic attacks? Why do I still battle depression? Why isn't the cancer healed? Why doesn't my marriage work yet? It's not because God lacks resources. It's not because he lacks resources Notice these back-to-back stories in chapter 6. God deals with a Syrian hit squad just as easily as he deals with a lost axe head. If you are not rescued yet out of your trial, it's because he's he's got a different purpose in mind. It's just like the angel helping Jesus to pray. The angel helping Jesus get strong again so that he can walk to the cross not to take him out of it. Um, it's, really, it's really kind of poetic that one of the biggest, one of the biggest struggles and, and trials and difficulties in life right now is, is anxiety. Um, and I heard, I heard, I don't know if he got this from somewhere, but Kevin DeYoung defined anxiety as living out the future before it gets here. That's really an unseen kind of fear. You don't know what's going to happen, but you're living it out anyway as if the bad thing is going to happen. It's it's quite poetic here that one of our biggest trials in life right now is, is this unseen sort of fear of the future. And if we were to just know the truly unseen things that we have at our disposal... What a great tool that would be. Our our physical eyes will probably never be open to actually see the angels around us, but it doesn't mean that they're not there. Our spiritual eyes can still be opened to that truth, and our fears don't have to prevail. We have the Lord and his angel army with us, always the covenantal protection is always there whether we see it or not that's the first point here's the second one that covenantal protection is undeserved this this entire this entire encounter here with elisha helping the wicked king of israel it really should kind of beg the question in your mind, why is the Lord helping Israel? Why is the Lord helping King Jehoram at all? Back in in chapter 3 when we first got introduced to to King Jehoram and they were going to war with with Moab, Elisha specifically said to the wicked king, "I, I wouldn't even look at you. If you didn't have the chosen, righteous king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, with you, I wouldn't have the time of day for you if Jehoshaphat wasn't here. But that's not the case this time. Our best, I think the best educated guess, you know, the king is unnamed here, but it's probably still King Jehoram from chapter 3 on the throne of Israel. And it seems like Jehoram and Elisha are a little bit more buddy-buddy at this point, a little bit more friendly, maybe. Um, Remember, Jehoram, Jehoram, it was kind of a two-way street in chapter 3. Jehoram didn't even care to go to Elisha at at the first. And then Elisha wouldn't give him the time of day later. But now they seem to be kind of friendly. But it's not because Jehoram has had a change of heart. Jehoram's the kind of person who's, who's friendly to you when things are going well. But when things are going poorly or when you've got bad news for him, he won't won't stand to see you in his presence. He doesn't have the time of day for you. And we have to remember back in chapter three, Jehoram's whole life and kingship is already evaluated for us. He was a wicked king that only did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not a good king. He was not repentant later in his life. He did not turn back to God. So why is Elisha helping him? Why this sort of, this, this holy spy, this holy bugging of the king's bedroom? The Lord intervenes because of his covenants with his people. I was thinking this past week, maybe what's a better word that I could use than covenantal protection? What's a more relatable sort of word? Um... But I didn't want to replace it because the whole idea of covenant is just so central to this text. God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel to be their God and to protect them and to be by their side, to be with them. And even though they're continually sort of slapping the Lord's face over and over again with Baal, with Asherah, with Molech, making... um, making treaties with foreign nations that don't worship the Lord, relying on their armies instead of the Lord and his angel army. Even though they're repeatedly sort of slapping the Lord in the face, even though it's still Ahab's house who's on the throne and influencing Israel, God's power is still working over it all, and he is still in covenant with his people. The Lord is being very, very patient with Israel right now. He could decimate them. In fact, he probably should decimate them with Syria's army. For generations upon generations, they never worshipped him. But he doesn't. He is patient and he protects them anyway. And he gives them a chance to turn. And it's really a good reminder for for later in Israel's history as well. If you remember, I think I mentioned it last time in the previous story where the very first readers of this text would have been exiled Israel, sitting in Babylon, sitting in a foreign nation. No more temple, no more king, no more home. It's gone. And what would this story have meant for them? That Babylon can do their worst, but much like Jesus in Gethsemane, they can be assured that there is a very good reason God's angel army has not come down yet on a rescue mission for them. There's a good reason they can be sure of God's own fierce commitment to his covenant, and that he would eventually bring them back home like he had promised I, th- I think this is a very powerful picture that teaches us that as, 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 long, as long as you are alive and as long as Jesus has not come back yet it is never too late to turn back to him. God is very, very patient. He gives you a lot of time to turn to him. But, there does need to be a sense of urgency in that, and that's actually the next story in Elisha's ministry, the urgency that needs to come with responding. But a lot of times he's very, very patient. Maybe you've, you've wandered away from him for a while, and you're just kind of coming back to church. Maybe you feel like you've done something just particularly awful and, 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 uh, and disgusting in your past, and you just can't get rid of the guilt of that. But, but God is not phased. He's not phased by that. He's not turned off by that past sin. He's not sort of sitting back and hemming and hawing and thinking, you know, I don't know, that one was pretty bad. Should I let him back? Should I let her back? No, that's not what he does. If you're repentant and if you put your trust in Jesus, he is always standing there with open arms. And especially if you grew up in the church, and then maybe walked away for a time. If you grew up in the church with the covenant promises, with the covenant baptism, with the covenant people around you week after week in church, all the covenant privileges, what an amazing testament to his grace and power that you would eventually come back to him. His covenantal grace and power and protection are always undeserved. So you shouldn't have to feel like, I need to to get my life back in order before I come back to church, before I come back to Jesus. I've got to clean my act up a little bit. You can't do anything to deserve it, but it's there. And again, we can say it's, it's, it's one thing to be told that. And it's another thing for you and me and for Israel to actually see it. And so wonder of all wonders, actually, Syria becomes an object lesson for Israel and for us. The this, this story does really culminate with the nation of Syria. Syria in this text is, is, is sort of, you know, doubly blinded. They're spiritually blind to the Lord, but they're also eventually physically blinded as well, they're also doubly spared. So the first one comes in verse 18. Uh, This is the one you might have missed. Verse 18, as Syria is coming down to go get Elisha, notice what doesn't happen. The angel army does not unsheathe their swords and start killing them. And again, well, that's important because actually, again, in the next story, we will see and we will hear this army come back, and they will win a war for the Lord and for Israel, but not here. And again, it's kind of like Balaam. Balaam was prevented from ever making it to that angel because of what the donkey did. Uh, They're prevented from running right into a heavenly trap. Because what the angel said to Balaam was, don't hit your donkey. If your donkey didn't lay down, I would have killed you. And That's what happens here. They never make it to that, uh, that, ar- that angel army. And the second one comes later. After Elisha prays for them to be blinded, he leads them on a, a 10-mile walk to the capital city of Samaria, right up to the doorstep of the palace of the king And Jehoram the king is bloodthirsty. Right? You can you can hear the eagerness in his voice in verse 21. Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And what does the Lord command him? You will not strike him down. You're gonna invite them to a feast. You're gonna get out the good dishes, you're gonna make them a five-course meal. You're going to pour them another glass of wine, and you're going to sit down at the dinner table with them. He invites them to a feast, something like a, a covenant meal. And there's actually a really fascinating sort of bookend to this, to this story. In verse 8, back at the beginning, it says, When the king of Syria was warring against Israel, that word for, for warring there is lacham. And then what does Elisha say down in, in verse 22? He says, set bread and water before them. The Hebrew word for bread is lechem. And so while Syria is, is trying to war with Israel and trying to defeat them, what does Israel do? They give them bread instead. It is awesome. It would be a lot like, um, well, we had a birthday party yesterday for uh, My second son, and uh, I've discovered this is my new favorite dessert here. Um, Let me tie that into this illustration here. Imagine the war in Ukraine. Imagine President Zelensky is sitting in the capital of Kiev, and Russian soldiers get marched up to there. They've got they've got nothing but death on the mind for the president. And President Zaleski turns around and says, here, have a giant helping of death by chocolate. <laughs> right. Ridiculous, uh, I grant you. But we, we can get really fascinated by the angels in this story. The real miracle is that God takes enemies and makes them his friend. He gives them the covenant meal. It's a lot like in, in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This would have been a profoundly humbling interaction for the Syrians and for Jehoram and for us because instead of being rightfully executed the Lord gives them and he gives us a feast he gives us a home and he gives us peace. All of us uh, metaphorically speaking we need to be marched up to the doorstep of the palace of our King on a daily basis and be reminded that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of us might need to have our pride cut down by this text. Some of you might be kind of skeptical or doubtful of this God or, or of Jesus or the gospel. Some of us just kind of struggle with plain old self-righteousness. And we think, I'm actually pretty okay. We need to be reminded that we were, we, we were sinners when Christ died for us. We're meant, to, we're meant to read this story and kind of say, oh, is that what it was like? That's what it was like for Christ to forgive me? It's incredible. Why would he do that? Um, it's actually, I was listening to another sermon this week, and, and the, the preacher was saying, you know, it's actually one of the biggest challenges in evangelism right now to actually convince people that they're sinners. That's one of the most important things we need to learn as well, that, that if, you, if you imagine sort of a, a picture of sharing the gospel, the bridge diagram, there's, there's us on one side, God on another, and an infinite chasm in between us. We need to be reminded that that there is an infinite gap between us and and a holy God. The Lord's protection and favor that he offers us and puts over us, his covenant, his love, his forgiveness, his reconciliation, is, is never anything that we deserve. It's purely by his grace. Some of us, are very painfully aware of that fact. Again, some of us might be coming back to Jesus after a long time away. Some of us feel run down by our guilt. Some of us just come face-to-face with our sin on a daily basis and wonder, when will it ever go away? And We need to be reminded that Christ died for you. The cross of Christ bridges that gap, that infinite gap, that was there. And God is fiercely committed to his covenant and he will not let you go. And like Paul says later in Romans, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you have believed in Jesus and if you've repented of your sin and if he has died for you, And if we can kind of take verse 16 and tweak it just a little bit. He who is with you is and always will be greater than anything against you. That's the good news of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do, we thank you and we praise you as we gather to worship you. Now that your blood has washed away our sins, the Father's wrath has been completely satisfied. Though we were once your enemies, we're now seated at your table. We thank you, God, for what you have done to come down to us with your grace to speak to us to solve the problem that we could not solve by ourselves, something we could never solve. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his cross, and we do pray that as we go forward from here that, that those, who, those who need comfort would be comforted, that those who need to be challenged and have their eyes opened to your truth, that their eyes would be opened, that they would see you, and we would all see your your great covenantal protection that we have. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.